Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I know we don't ever do this before, but if you are able to do it today, I would love for you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So we are a a new school church, if you put it that way, with old school values. And let's just stand for the reading of God's word. And I want to read two passages, two difficult sayings of Jesus in our hearing, and then we'll pray and jump in. This is Jesus, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Notice what Jesus says. He says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, notice who are the 72? They're, they're like the second ring of disciples. Jesus had an inner circle of three. He had 12 disciples, and then he had 72. I will note here, it's a side point, the number of families listed in Genesis 11 when God scattered the earth with diverse tongues was 72 nations. It's pretty interesting. Now God is rebringing back. That's what the Gospels are. It's a divine reversal of the book of Genesis chapter 11. He's bringing back these 72 various tribes and nations. And they returned, and they're excited because the demons are subject. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority, disciples, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. One other passage, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 53, reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? Jesus, of course, on the cross. And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. We don't use the word legions. He's talking about 100 plus thousand angels can be sent to dispatch me right here where I'm at on the cross. Now listen. These statements, these difficult statements are like hard candy where you have to be patient with them to really enjoy them. Some verses, most verses in the Bible are like caramels. You put them in your mouth, you chomp down, you enjoy the whole thing in a few seconds. These statements, if you crunch down on them, they will break your theological teeth and you'll leave with no more substance than you had. So these take you, you have to massage them. You have to look at them. You have to think about them. And I want to encourage you just for today, just be patient with them. Whether you're a new person trying to figure Jesus out or you're a disciple trying to get to know Jesus better, some of the sweetest, deepest truths about life and God come from these kind of statements. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to study your word. I pray that this word would speak to our hearts and challenge and change us. Lord, just don't leave us the way you found us this morning. We thank you that we serve a victorious Savior. And Lord, Satan has been defeated. He has been defeated. Lord, I thank you that we have the victory in you, Jesus. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. And everybody sit. Amen. You may be seated. Now, why is this statement difficult? It's a great question. Why is this one so difficult? Well, first of all, does it mean that we have the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions? Like, is this when our church really, really, really starts to get weird? (laughs) Um, maybe. But first, if the ushers would please come forward with the buckets of poisonous snakes right now to the altar, if you'd please... So what's happening? Even if you know that Jesus didn't really mean that in the literal sense, you might say, is Jesus actually saying 
that Satan is real, like a real devil with a tail and a horns and a pitchfork? And maybe you're in this room today and you've been a person who've been around other individuals who are obsessed with the demonic. They were obsessed with demons in the demonic realm. You, you had a friend in college who stayed up all night studying the night before the test and they flunked the test and they come back to, to your room the next day and they say, you know what, the demons messed me up. And you're like, bro, you, you, maybe, you, maybe, maybe it's because you didn't study. Maybe it's because you crammed the night before. You have, you, maybe you had a friend like that or maybe like a, the mother of the friend I had who was a roommate in college. And whenever something wrong went wrong with their car, demons were always the first suspect. Car wouldn't start demons mess with the battery. I'm like, well, you can go with the demon theory if you want, but I, I think might as well, let's cast the demon out, then change the battery and see if one of two options will work, right? You know, it was always the demons that were preventing and prohibiting everything that happened in life. So maybe you're trying to tell me, Craig, that Jesus really believed in demons? Like he really believed in demons and Satan, like with pitchfork and horns? Well, not with pitchfork and horns, but you can see from this verse that Jesus most definitely believed that Satan and demons were real. They were very real. In fact, Jesus, if we could say it this way, spent his whole ministry engaging with the devil. He spent his whole ministry engaging with demonic forces. Satan, by the way, is mentioned 250 times in the New Testament. That means one per chapter. Satan, once per chapter. In the New Testament, 250 references. And here he is, he's given this clear instruction about how to engage. So if you're here today and you're going to take Jesus seriously, and you're going to take the New Testament seriously, you've got to take this part seriously. In fact, it's a major theme in Jesus' life. And I guess why I feel so compelled to preach on it, not only to speak to the future, like we spoke last week with Keys for Keys and speaking to prepare our church for how to walk in the supernatural, but for us to understand how it is that we actually engage in the spiritual realm, right? And if you say, well, I just don't know anything about this because I'm ignorant. It's not because I desire not to. It's just I've never been taught it. Well, you're missing a big part of the Christian life, a really big part of the Christian life. So let's start. Well, who is Satan? What does he do? Well, this verse gives you a clue as to where he came from. Look what verse 19 said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan, you've got to understand, was one of the highest archangels that rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven as a result of, of rebelling against God. He took one-third of the angels with him. Now, Scripture never gives us a detail, detailed account of this. You have to, what I call deduction, you have to uh, deduce and you have to put together, uh, piece it together from various portions of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 14 is probably one of the closest. Okay, Isaiah 14, look at verse 12 through 14. It gives you a glimpse into what happened. This verse, by the way, can I just go ahead and tell you, is a, is a statement about a human king who rebelled against God. This is a human king. But Isaiah looks through him and sees the real enemy behind the human king. And yes, human kings can be empowered by Satan. In fact, 1 John very clearly tells us the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And so he looks through the evil king to see the real evil king, and that is Satan behind him. How do you know that, Craig? Because look at the verse says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Well, the king there in Isaiah, Isaiah was not, his name was not Lucifer. So he's not speaking to the natural name of the person. He's speaking to the person behind the person. And he says, Son of Dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. In fact, five times in that passage, Satan says, I will. What do you see in those verses? What repeats itself? It's I will. That's the heart of satanic rebellion. It's I will, not God's will. The theme of a heart dominated by sin is I will. 
I will. Not you will, not your will, not you desire, but I will. I will do this. I will ascend. I will. And so ever since Satan was then cast down to the earth and he took a host of heaven with him, he's been trying to coerce everything and anything to join him in that rebellion. He wants any and all to rejoin him in the rebellion against God. I've told you before the theme song in in hell is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Okay? I did it my way. I lived it my way. I did it the way I desired to do. So we, as a race, we're talking about a human race, have joined Satan in his rebellion. And now, whether you like it or not, the Bible tells us Satan has a certain authority over humans. A certain authority over us. Jesus said in John 10, 10, he's here to kill, steal, and destroy. I told you that Satan is mentioned over 250 times in the New Testament. Let me show you what he's doing, by the way. By the way, there was no way possible for me to get all the scriptures this week. It's the most scriptures I've ever used in a message because I'm not preaching from each one of them. I'm reading them to give you context of both where demons live and play and do and attack and where angels operate, okay? So the best thing to do is if you want to take your card and just write them, reference them. Don't try to turn to them in your Bible, okay? We're going way too fast for that. But if you want to write those down, you can write those down as we go, okay? Don't focus all on getting every one turned in your Bible. Get a feel, if you can, for what the New Testament specifically says Satan does. Here it is. Jesus, in John 8, 44, he calls him the father of all lies. He's the father of all lies. In 1 Timothy 4 and 1, the Bible says that Satan corrupts truth and he concocts false doctrines. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 through 15, he says that Satan gives false teachers the ability not only to imitate signs and wonders, but also to speak persuasively. Satan has that ability. 1 Corinthians 7 and 5 tells us that he tempts the saints specifically with illicit sex. He loves tempting godly men and women with illicit sex. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he tells us that he turns unresolved anger into bitterness in the hearts of God's people. Have you ever been in church and you felt that thing coming up against in you and your heart against someone else in the church and it felt stronger than it felt when you weren't even in church against people who were not believers? That is Satan working on your heart. It's very clear. That is the work of Satan in your heart to try to build up bitterness to defile you and ultimately separate you from the life of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says he puts obstacles in the way of people trying to tell other people about Jesus. Have you ever been sharing with someone? Have you ever been trying to evangelize someone and the most bizarre distractions in that person's life happened that week that has ever happened in the last five years of living? I mean, things happen out of nowhere. What is Satan doing? He's arranging circumstances to get their heart and mind off of the faithful witness of Christ, off the faithful evangelist that's giving them a good model of Christ-like love in their workplace. Romans 16, verse 17 and 20, he says he he sows discord and division among God's people and he moves in God's people to rebel against their leaders. When God's people rebel against their leaders, it's Satan authoring it without a doubt. First John chapter three and verse 10 calls him the father of hatred and murder at work in the rulers of the world. In fact, here's what's crazy. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan offers something pretty crazy in Luke 4, 6. He takes him to the highest point and he offers him, he says, to you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory, all the nation's glory, for it has been delivered to me and I, Satan, not Jesus speaking here, give it to whom I will. What really boggles my mind is Jesus concedes the point. He doesn't fight the point. He concedes the point. Think about that. 
Satan right now is moving in the highest levels of American power. He's moving in the highest levels of earthly power, the highest levels of financial power, the highest levels of military power. Satan is operative there. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he says he puffs up Christian leaders with pride so that they will fall. And then in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 through 26, he says he brings to the minds of unbelievers the pride and other faults of Christian leaders so they won't take the gospel seriously. That's why they, the, the news outlets are so empowered when a Christian leader falls, to get the information to everybody. That's what 2 Timothy tells us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. 1 Thessalonians 3 and 5, that he attacks faith wherever he finds it. If Satan finds faith in you, He's out to attack it. Ephesians says he ensnares believers in their sin so that they get addicted to them, that they think, I'll never get out of this sin. I'll never break free from this sin. And throughout the New Testament, we see Satan causing sickness and even sometimes insanity. In the Old Testament, we know that Satan afflicted Job's body. He had access to afflict Job's body and his family. Many passages in the New Testament relate physical maladies with spiritual causes. Matthew chapter 12, a demon makes a man blind and mute. A demon does that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul calls his physical affliction. He called it a thorn in the flesh, but he said it was a messenger of Satan to afflict me. Satan can afflict your body. He can go and bring affliction to your body. That's what happened in Paul's life. He was sent from Satan to give a thorn in the flesh. So is he real? Is Satan real? Is he active? If Jesus knew what he was talking about, the answer to that is a resounding yes. He's real. By the way, are you skeptical about this? Can you not look at the world and see that something more than flesh and blood is at work in America? Can you not look at the world around you and see that something way more than flesh and blood? You look at certain points of chapters of human history, and you're like, how could that have happened? Like, how in the world did the Rwandan genocide happen? If you go to school, read read about World War I. You've studied World War I. It was the most pointless bloodbath in history. What was the point of it? There was no point in World War I. Who's behind this? Who in the world is inciting this? How do you get to the levels of cruelty you see in the Sudan? How do you get to the levels of cruelty you see in the Taliban? How did slavery happen in America? How is the abortion epidemic still happening in our country right now? How does child pornography, how does the human sex slave trade, how do these things gain traction, folks? It's not because people want them to gain traction. It's because Satan wants to destroy lives. Oh, that only happens in other countries. Actually, it happens as the number two hub of the United States called Atlanta, Georgia. How does those get traction? Satan is what gives those things traction. In fact, the famous historian from Yale, Yale, bingo here, right? I mean, we're talking about a liberal institution. He said, Marlo Unger said, history is littered with the story of powerful men and women whose infliction of destruction and death could only be described by two words, insane or diabolical. Insane or diabolical. Can't you see that? Can't you see that there's something greater at work in the world than just human dysfunction and bad parenting and poor societies? In fact, let me just throw this in here, side point. Three times in the Bible, the Bible says that Satan directly filled someone. Only three times. It was the serpent, it was Judas and Antichrist, and every time somebody was filled with Satan, they looked completely sane and normal. That's the key point. They look completely normal, but they're murderous, And the number one thing they're bent on is destroying Christianity. They're not rolling their eyes and picking them up and throwing them through the the air to hit the wall. That's not what Satan did with these three people. 
to quote Tony Campolo, he said, Satan is the one appearing in movies, telling us that romantic love and sexual pleasure are the keys to fulfillment. Satan is the one behind an economic system that teaches that money is the key to success and happiness. He works in and through governments that coddle people into thinking that government help is the answer. Satan is the one who sits in the psychologist's chair offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He's the one standing as a professor in the university touting that science and education have all the answers. He's the one teaching from pulpits that life is about you, that God wants to make you rich, that hell is not for real, and that the standards of the Bible are for a different time and place. So is hell real? You better believe it. You say, well, why isn't he more obvious? Demons seem a lot more visible in the Bible than they do today. Well, that depends on really probably where you live in the world and how spiritually discerning you are in your own life. But listen to me. Write this down, or actually it's in your card. Satan is not after your recognition. He's after your destruction. He's not after your recognition. He's after destroying you. What that means is he's happy if he can destroy you, and you don't even know it's him doing it. You don't even know it's him involved. Think of it like a hunter. I'm a hunter. I don't care if the deer ever knows that I'm there. I'd prefer it never knows I'm there. I'm, I'm stalking it. I want to kill it without it knowing that I'm in its presence. I have a great respect for animals. That's why I love deer hunting, the magnificent, the mysterious nature of never showing up and showing up in the middle of the night and then finally walking in front of me on a morning and you spend all this time to work to try to get the perfect shot. And, and that's what Satan does studies you, finds the weaknesses, finds the angles, finds the appetites that are left unbridled in your life. It's like the wolf blade up in the Arctic, up in the northern part of Canada. They don't like wolves because wolves killed household pets and they kill seals. You know what they do? They take knives, sharp, sharp knives, and they dip the knife into seal's blood and then they freeze it, and they dip it again and freeze it. They dip it again and freeze it until it becomes a blood popsicle where you can't see the knife anymore. They bury it in the ground, and they let the handle uh, be covered in the ground, and then the, the wolf comes along and begins to, begins to smell the blood, and he goes and begins to lick the blood, and when he begins to lick the blood, he loves the taste of the blood. It starts thawing out. Before long, he's licking this blood popsicle, and his tongue is numb now from the coldness, and so he starts licking the knife, and he is cutting his his entire tongue into ribbons and the blood that's pulling down below him is no longer the seal's blood. It's his own blood. And then he goes and wanders off and dies and has no idea what happened to him. That's what Satan does in sin with people. He, he, he doesn't care that you know that what he's doing in your life. That's why we call him the angel of light. He's saying, follow this. He's not coming to you with a pitchfork and horns. He's coming saying, follow this. That's what your heart wants. And then your blood, you're laying in your blood dead unable to have any more life. This is what Satan does. This is how Satan operates. It reminds me of 1 Peter 5 and 8. Look what he said. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. First of all, notice that Peter calls Satan a lion. That means he's part of the cat family. I told you cats are demons, okay? I told you that, all right? It's not the main point, but it's a good point to put in here, okay? He's, a part of the, he's not a part of the dog family. He's part of the cat family. The main point is he's a hunter. He seeks prey. And what happens if you go through life not even knowing you have an enemy? It reminds me of the ghost in the darkness. Remember that movie with Val Kilmer about 15, 20 years ago? That's one you don't want to show to the teenagers before you take them on a mission trip to Africa. The lion is attacking people in the jungle, remember, and they're, they don't really believe it's a lion, but no one believes it's actually happening, but people wake up every morning and another person's missing until Val Kilmer goes into Africa and 
he begins to take care of this, this line, right? And you watch that and you go to an African mission trip, you're going to be paranoid all night long, all right? You go stay out in the bush of Africa. But I guess it's totally better to be paranoid than totally ignorant of the danger. And I think a lot of people in our churches are ignorant of the danger of Satan. So let me ask you a question. What if Satan was at work in your life right now? What if he was in the temptations? Sir, what if he was the one hovering over the top of your computer screen, beckoning you to enjoy yourself for a few moments after your wife is asleep before you drift off to sleep? What if he was the one providing you, businessman, with opportunities, really easy opportunities to get ahead in life and just to cheat a little bit without anybody noticing? Have you ever noticed how some temptations seem so perfect? I mean, have you ever noticed this? Like, I'm, I've been traveling overseas before. I remember one particular time I go with a friend and think that I'm with a person, but we're going to check in a hotel in Brazil, and I go to check in the hotel. And this has only happened one or two times in my entire life, and this young lady comes up and literally starts trying to hit on us. And I, I'm sitting there after an emotional trip, and I'm looking at this girl, and behind that pretty face, I literally can see a roaring line seeking to destroy my ministry, my family, and everything that's good and godly in my home. Have you ever noticed this? It's the most, it's the most perfect timing. Sometimes the temptations come at the most beautiful moments, seemingly most opportune times in our life. What if he... Husband and wife were the one trying to make so divorce so appealing and reasonable. And it seems so legitimate in your mind because nothing destroys family in the church more than an unbiblical divorce. Nothing destroys it quicker. Dads, what if he was the one after your kids and you weren't even involved? Listen, Satan is probably excited you got your family on autopilot and you got your kids consumed with every other extracurricular sport activity but not anchored in the people of God. He loves that because you've not even protected them. You've left them full prey. And you're disconnected from the spiritual attack on your own children. What if he were the one trying to get you in debt? We don't talk about this in America. Making it seem like you have to have that car. Why? Because debt makes you a slave. And guess what Satan loves? He loves slavery. And so in America, since we don't vilify debt, he can get Christians in more debt, so he limits their ability to do anything for God. And so we, so we, don't, deal, we don't vilify it. We look at it as something welcoming. So now we're limited now we're unable to do what God really wants us to do. Some of you here, you're watching my live stream, you're trying to investigate Christianity. What if he were the one that were planting doubts in your mind? And what if all this was happening and you were completely unaware of it? Wow, Craig, great, great encouraging message so far. You encouraged that? <laughs> I feel good too, all right? Now let's move to the good news. Let's move to the good news. Verse 19, I saw Satan fall like lightning, and I have given authority to you to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That is an amazing promise, church. I have given you authority to tread on them. Think about what it would be like to walk on serpents and scorpions. Now, that's a metaphor. Would you do that? I wouldn't, right? I would not take a big pile of snakes and go walking across them barefoot. But Jesus says we have the authority to tread over spiritual demons and wickedness in high places. And look what he says. And nothing shall hurt you. Paul's. That does not mean Satan can't afflict you. Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh that was a messenger of Satan that he asked God to remove three times and God said no. Nothing can hurt you means that nothing Satan can do can stop the forward progress of what God has for your life. 
It does not mean you can't be afflicted by Satan. Yes, you can, according to Scripture. But you cannot allow, God will not allow the affliction that the enemy afflicts you with or inflicts upon you to be used ultimately for your harm. God will reverse it and will ultimately, like Paul, turn the messenger of Satan for Paul's own good. You have been given authority in Jesus Christ to overrule everything that Satan intended for your evil and use it for your good. That's the victory in Jesus Christ. You say, well, well, how do we exercise that authority over Satan, demonic realm? Well, great question. Before we get to it, let me answer a couple practical questions. These are questions I get as a pastor. People ask me, number one, Craig, I got a situation, i.e. sickness, disease, and I don't know if there's a spiritual reason behind it. What should I do? We know so much now. The science of medicine and God gave us that knowledge and he expects us to use that knowledge to its fullest and yet we know there can be spiritual reasons behind that sickness. I already gave you some references above. In fact, let me give you another one. 1 Corinthians says that the some were sick and even died because of their disrespect for the Lord's table. They were disrespecting the Lord's table and they were dying because of this. They were dying. Well, part of the problem, I think, and if I can answer it this way, part of the problem is we like to draw neat lines between the, the natural and the supernatural. But I want to tell you something. This will blow your mind. The supernatural can work in and through the natural. Let me explain it. For example, can God send a storm? Yes. Does that mean he did not use normal forces of nature and clouds and low pressures to cause it? No. The supernatural can be in the natural. The supernatural comes and works through the natural. My kids, I teach them every day that they were specifically created by God and specially created by God. Is that true? Psalm 139 says they were knit together and they have a purpose of God. Does that eliminate and take away from the fact that my wife and I played a role biologically of which we deeply enjoyed? No. The supernatural works through the natural. So what he says is you should not draw the lines between natural and supernatural. You shouldn't do that as a Christian. You don't draw those clear lines. In fact, practically speaking, when you're dealing with a situation like sickness and you suspect there may be some supernatural purpose behind it, my counsel to you is that you would both address natural and supernatural resources as you seek healing. In other words, exhaust every natural remedy at our disposal and then be sensitive to spiritual reasons as well. Uh, In fact, did you know that Paul traveled with a licensed physician? Did you know this? That's why I find it so uh, funny. Do you all find it funny when you read Paul's epistles of how he gives this medical advice? Okay, Paul, we got you, buddy. You got a message of Satan and you're, you know, like what's he doing? Does he have training? Gamaliel teach him? No, Dr. Luke traveled with him. And so Luke is speaking through the pages. Dr. Luke was a licensed physician. and, And so Paul is now speaking of the physical side of sickness. The point is one doesn't have to exclude the other. So when someone's sick, call the doctors. But if you begin to suspect that something really different is at work, James says to call, James 5, the elders of the church and lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Can I get an amen? Here's another question I get a lot. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Interesting enough, the Bible never uses the word demon-possession. That's a bad English translation. The Greek word is diodzomai. It's a my verb. We call it my verbs in Greek. Diodzomai literally means demonized. Can a Christian be demonized or afflicted by a demon? Yes. Can a born-again piece of God's property afflicted by a demon? Yes. In fact, if you're in this preaching, we told you around here at Dwelling Place, if you get drowsy while I'm up here preaching or Pastor Chad's up here preaching, it's a sign that a demon's afflicting you. If you get drowsy, a demon's inflicting you. And here's what I give you permission to do. Just reach over and lay your hand on their forehead and say, demons out. (laughs) Now, whether or not they have a demon or not, the spirit of slumber will leave them instantly, okay? The spirit of slumber will be gone out the back door. 
listen to me, any part of you that is not surrendered to Jesus and placed under the protection of his blood can be demonized. Any part of your soul that's unrenewed that is given place and credence to the enemy can be demonized. Your soul can never be completely taken over. Your spirit is one with Christ, fused with Christ. If you're a Christian, it belongs to Jesus, but parts of you that have not been brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ can be demonized. Of course they can be demonized, which leads me to the final question. How should we engage the demonic? Well, this passage doesn't give you a lot of detailed instruction, but notice what Jesus says in verse 20. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Listen to me. Jesus consistently directs people away from the preoccupation with the demonic. And some of you, this is going to be so foreign to you because you didn't grow up in environments like I did in faith tradition where people were so preoccupied with naming every spirit and casting out every spirit and exiling and exercising every spirit of every life. He tells us to get away from preoccupation. In fact, he never tells us, Jesus, to go demon hunting or approach the world like an exorcist. There's only really one passage in which the Bible outlines for us what spiritual warfare is like. It's Ephesians 6. And when he looks at those passages, by the way, go back two Septembers. You can look at a series. We did a whole series on spiritual warfare. It's a great series. You're going to listen to it. I don't have time to go into it today because i got to talk about the opposite of the fallen angels and i got to talk about the elect angels, okay? But when we talk about spiritual warfare... The, the understanding, what's interesting and maybe disappointing to some of you is that none of the weapons given to us in Ephesians 6 are really that weird. The helmet of salvation, what's that? Let the gospel shield your thinking. Take up the shield of faith, what's that? Take up belief in God's promises and what he said about the, his truth. Take up the belt of truth, good news, you never want to go into fight with your pants down, right? So you take up the belt of truth, what is that? The gospel around your life, the truth of God's word. Have your feet covered with what? A readiness to preach what? The gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have to take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The Bible or the gospel. So let me summarize all of those things for you in Ephesians 6. Put faith in the gospel. Be covered by the gospel. Saturate yourself in the gospel. Let the gospel lead and, and, and direct and saturate your life. In other words, what I'm saying is when you are covered by the gospel, Satan can't touch you. Satan can't touch you. I know for once, I was at a conference one time, and I know a woman who was praying with another Christian she worked with about something she was worried about. And she ran into the back room, and the lady went and got a piece of construction paper and cut out a snake in construction paper and a small decorative hatchet and said, there, cut off the head of the snake to this lady. Well, God never tells us to do that kind of stuff. I don't want to judge whatever God, but this is weird. And a construction paper, and she's hitting it with a construction paper hatchet in an altar, Okay? Well, the reality is, and first, let me, let me give you examples. First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's addressing the division in the Christian church. He said in Romans 16, division can be demonic, remember? He's addressing the, the division in, in Corinthian church. This is like the Jerry Springer show of churches, by the way, right? This is why we don't see the results of Acts, because we want the Acts-like results with living the Corinthian-like lifestyles. That's what we are in America, okay? And this is like the Jerry Springer of church division. It is a crazy in 1 Corinthians. You know what Paul says? He never says, walk into the church and rebuke the spirit of division. He says, unite your minds and be charitable to one another. That's what he tells them. In 1 Corinthians 5, when he talks about the problem of immorality in the church, which by the way, some guy's sleeping with his mom. I was reading this week, some scholars say it's his stepmom. I don't care if it's mom or stepmom, okay? If you call her mom and you take her to the prom, that's a bad thing, okay? You don't do it with either side of the mom. And this is a major, major issue in the church. And, and, and he doesn't say, I rebuke the spirit of incest. He encourages the Corinthians to exercise church discipline, encourage the guy to repent. What are you saying, Craig? Think about it. 
Get grounded in Jesus and he won't be able to touch you. Luke 11, 14 through 26 tells the same thing. Jesus tells a parable. He says a guy talks about a demon being thrown out of a house. The guy's excited. He's excited. He cleans up. He cleans up the house. The evil spirit goes through arid places. He finds seven of his evil buddies. And the Bible says he comes back and founds the house swept in order. And the Bible says that the demons fill that house. And the scripture says the last state of that man is worse than the former. You know what Jesus said? If you want to keep him out, you need a stronger resident who when the demons come back, they can't take over. See, the irony is, if you want to fight the demonic in your life, you don't focus on the demons at all. You let Jesus be large in your life. Surrender more to the lordship of Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon said the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. It's the whip that wears out the devil. How do you get the devil out of your church, pastor? You preach Jesus, and you do what? You let let, let the preaching of Jesus beat the heck out of Satan. I could probably have got away with saying beat the hell out of Satan right there, right? Whatever you want to say. You, you preach Jesus, and you let, you let Satan get flogged. You see, when Jesus won on the cross and resurrection, and he destroyed, he, 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 destroyed, he destroyed every power Satan has over you. I was reading a book from Tony Evans a couple weeks ago, and he talked about back in the pioneer days as a family on a, uh, of plane and the fire began to sweep the plane and in a field was a fire on the horizon and so in realizing everything would be lost he gets his family and young kids in a wagon and takes off away from the fire and he realizes the fire's catching up to me when he realized that everything in his life that was precious is going to be lost in the fire he stopped the cabin I mean the the uh, the wagon he got out of the wagon and he took the 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 field there and he lit it on fire and he let it burn out in a big circle and then he put it out, and he stood with he and his family right in the middle of the circle where everything had already been burned, and the fire came and burned around them, around the whole circle. Why? It didn't burn them because the place they were had already been burned. Let me tell you, Jesus took all the accusations and was burned by it so that Satan's wrath can't touch you. And if you'll stand right in the middle of what Jesus has accomplished, you'll stand already in the ground that has been burned. When the fires of the enemy come after you, they will go around you. Why? Because Jesus had victory over Satan. So you stand in the spot where it has already been burned and you declare Jesus' victory. I say it this way, Christians fight from victory, not for victory. They fight from victory. So that's the demonic. But what about the angelic? Are there such things as angels, Pastor Craig? Yes. We talked about a third of the angels being cast down to earth. Let me speak of the role of angels for a few moments. Are there angels? Yes, angels exist. 108 times in the Old Testament refers to angels. 165 times in the New Testament refers to angels. There's a reason, I'll tell you in a minute, why more angels, I think, are referenced in the New Testament, but angels exist. Angels exist. Not just the Bible tells us angels exist, but people have had experiences with angels, right? Yeah, no doubt they exist. John Payton, J-O-H-N, P-A-Y-T-O-N. He was a missionary in the Hebrides. He tells the story when he was a missionary, the natives one night coming to kill him and his wife. He and his wife got in a hut. The natives were outside with spears and swords ready to kill he and his wife. They were doing all the, if you've ever seen the movie End of the Spear, you'll get this story. And he's there in Hebrides and the angel, uh, uh, he prayed all night and the natives finally leave him alone. And later on, when one of the natives was converted, they said, what happened that night? And they said, when we came to kill you that night, your whole, your whole hut was surrounded by men in shining armor and swords. We couldn't penetrate it. Angels exist. Today we live in an overbelief of angels, by the way, because of an ancient revival called Gnosticism. We have, a, we have Gnosticism in America today. 
You look at the whole shelf on books of angels. The charismatic Pentecostal world for a few years went crazy off the side. They did exactly what he tells the church there not to do, and that is that to not venerate angels and to speak of your angelic experiences all the time. Paul tells them to do that. You look at the whole bookshelf. Go in the Christian bookstore. We have guardian angels. We have books of how to get angels on your side, how to access these entities. We have a nation that's flooded with the idea of angels. Paul in Colossians, this is an ancient paganism is all it is. It's a revival of ancient paganism. Paul said to the Colossians, they go into detail about experiences they had. He said the Colossians venerate angels. Some of the stories we hear today about dramatic rescues, no doubt they could have been angels. They could be. The most popular show in the 80s and 90s was Touched by an Angel. The basic plot line is a person is in trouble, an angel comes to help resolve the crisis. But what happens is America reads and hears these type of realities, and it's loaded with cultural theology, and it's a non-Christian view of man and a non-Christian view of God with angels out there trying to do stuff for anyone and everyone. Well, that's not what Scripture says. In fact, if I see another Facebook post, it troubles me deeply when I see a person, especially as a Christian, who says a loved one has died, and it says, take your wings, baby, and fly. I want to delete the post, but I don't have access to delete the post. And it's not because I want to be mean to the person that's in grief, but let's don't, let's don't propagate false, wrong ideas, doctrine, and theology. Ain't nobody becoming an angel. No one's dying and taking on and being an angel. Angels are created beings. In fact, they're what we would call discreetly created beings. I'll get there in a minute. So what does the Bible teach about good angels? Well, first of all, they're called the elect angels. The reason they're elect is because they were preserved by following, fall, falling by a divine decree. That's what God said. And so today, because there's a lot of scriptures, again, just write them down. Let's look at the whole story real quick, referring to scriptures. A couple words about angels. Number one, what are they like? They're spirit beings. They're spirit beings. Do they have a body? Yes, but it's a spirit body, if I can say that. I can say that. You say, Craig, how do you know? They're not omnipresent. When an angel comes to communicate with Daniel in Babylon, he couldn't be in Jerusalem at the same time. He later, a few centuries later, a few, yeah, centuries later, arrives in Jerusalem to talk to a man named Zacharias. He flies really quickly to Nazareth to talk to Mary. Now, although he's not omnipresent, angels seem to, according to Scripture, move pretty quickly. But they're not omnipresent. They can't be in two places simultaneously. They're created by God. They will exist forever, even as we will exist forever. There's no end to angels. Next question. Do they have a personality? Yes, they have a personality. Psychology says a personality, the test for personality is mind, emotion, and will. We call that the soul. Intelligence, emotion, and will. Do they have intelligence? Yes, they can communicate. They do all through Scripture. They rolled the stone away on resurrection morning. They're talking right there to Mary and the rest that are gathered. They have intelligence. The passage that's critical to our study today is 1 Peter 1 and 12. Look what he says in 1 Peter 1 and 12. I love it. One of my favorite passages. He talks about salvation. And then he says these things, this, this salvation, the, even the angels long to look into these things. The angels desire to study salvation. You don't have desire unless you have personality. You have a will. Do they have emotion? Oh yeah, baby. Job 38. He talks to the angels about he talks about the angels as stars. Look what the Bible says in Job 38 and 7. At creation, the morning stars sang together for joy. My imagination is God lined up hundreds of millions of angels before the created world. And he said, Watch this, by the way, God doesn't create any more angels according to scripture. So all the angels that have been created are there. And they're always going to be there. It's pretty interesting when you talk about Jesus calling the legion of angels in Matthew 26, but I imagine God lined up all the angels and he said, watch this. And God spoke 
and stars were created and planets. No wonder they shouted for joy. Wouldn't you shout for joy? Luke 15 and 10, the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's a celebration in heaven. So do they have emotion? Yes. Do they have a will? Let me answer it. Yes. Satan, who was the most glorious of angels, he had a will and he said, I will ascend. I will. What is their form of appearance? Well, they can come in different ways. They're all subject to the will of God. Let me give you a couple examples. Joseph is wondering if he should marry Mary, remember? He's wondering, and an angel appears to him in a dream. He says, don't take Mary as your wife. Don't, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. And the angel explains that the Christ child would come through Mary. So how did the angel show up? He came in a dream. But most often, I'm gonna say this most often, they come with the ability to actually themselves look like ordinary human beings. That's the most that angels show up in scripture. They look like humans. Abraham entertains three men. They weren't men. He eat with them. They leave. He realizes they were three angels. Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 2, he says, don't neglect and don't neglect to let strangers in your house. Why? By doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Angels more times than not look like human beings. Uh, let's think of another one. They come and rescue Lot from Sodom and they look so much like men that the men of Sodom wanted to sodomize them. They wanted to come in and, and, and God uh, through Lot strikes them, uh, through Abraham strikes them with blindness. And this shows you how crazy passion is it's un, un, when it's unelicited like that. They're struck with blindness and the Bible says the next verse that they tried to look for the door handle to keep on having sexual relationship with these angels. And, and you wonder how strong that sexual pull is. They're looking for the door handle to try to get in to, to sodomize these angels. So often their appearance is like human beings. What about the ministry of angels? What do they do? Well, they worship God. The first order of angels are called the seraphim. The seraphim is one category of angels and the seraphim are called, the literal translation is burning ones. They're before the throne of God giving praise to God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. One of the passages that's foundational for us in studying angels is Hebrews 1 and 14. It says they are ministering spirits. Angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are inheriting salvation. That means angels under God's direction become your servant. <laughs> I don't know. I remember when I was first a believer, I was trying to study angels. They, under God's direction, become the servants of God's people. Do you understand that? So we shouldn't be amazed frequently in the Bible that they are messengers. You know what angel means? Messenger. Angelos. Messenger. Angel means messenger. What does God use angels for? To communicate and send messages to people. Gabriel came to speak to Zacharias and Mary. And the incarnation comes about. The angel comes to the shepherds out in the shepherd's field, and they, of course, are terrified. Wouldn't you be? And they say, fear not, for unto you today in the city of David a child is born who is Christ the Lord. What are the angels doing? Communicating a message. Psalm 103, what are angels? They're spirits who obey the voice of God's word. Angels obey God's word. Much of Daniel and Revelation was actually communicated to Daniel by an angel. If you go to Revelation, John, who, where did he get all the information to write down those 21 chapters? Most of it came communication by angels. What about protection? Do angels protect? Touched by an angel. Protected by an angel. Yeah, three stories in the book of Acts talk about the protection of angels. My favorite one probably is Acts 5. The apostles are in jail. The angel opens the door of the prison and says, go stand and speak in the presence of the people. Acts 5, 19 and 20, by the way. Then my really favorite one is Acts 12. Most dramatic, Peter's asleep in prison. He's sleeping, an angel nudges him, says, get your clothes on. 
Put your shoes on, put your cloak on, and let's walk. I always find that humorous, right? Like, put your clothes on. I can open all the doors, but you put your clothes on. I'm like, yeah, you would need to be told by the angel to put your clothes on because you'd probably walk out naked not knowing what in the world is going on right now. So he says, put your clothes on. And then I imagine like Walmart, he puts his cart and he starts walking and the doors start opening. And he goes to the next level of the prison and the doors start walking. And Peter walks out that day with an angel. He goes to where that they're having a prayer meeting for him to get out. And he knocks on the door and the woman, the girl sees him, goes back to the group and says, it's his angel. Go read it. It's his angel is what the girl says. People didn't believe that God had answered their prayers that he got freed. So you can't see them all the time so they can see you. And they serve God. Paul's in a difficult dilemma. He's going to trial. He's on a ship. And he said, don't worry, guys. We're going to get to Rome. An angel of the Lord stood by me last night. So God uses angels to communicate messages with us and sometimes bring messages to the human race. They'll also be at our death. Do you know angels will be at your death? They're very interested in salvation. Luke 16 says that Lazarus died and it was angels that carried him into Abraham's bosom. Oh, yeah, angels will be at your death. They're going to be right there at your death. When five missionaries were murdered in Central America in the 1950s by the Alka Indians, oh, it was a beautiful story. They were young men, beautiful young men. And these young men were there serving Christ and the advancement of the gospel, and he murdered these, martyred these five men, and a whole choir of angels showed up that night. You say, Craig, how do you know? The way this was discovered was not at the time of the murders, but when the murderers came to saving faith over two Decades later, 20 years later, they invited these missionaries, these invited these indigenous people into their homes to eat dinner. And when they did, the missionaries were playing records of Christian music and choirs. And all of the men who had been saved from this indigenous people, they go stark white. And they said, we heard that that night when the killings took place. They said, we looked up in the trees and that same music showed up. What happened? Angels showed up in the trees to take those five missionaries to their creator. The angels came and gathered those five individuals and took them into the presence of Jesus. Yes! Angels are real. Yes, angels guide people to heaven. Yes, angels become our servants. Not only do they do that, they execute judgment for God. Did you know that angels don't just have a ministry to the saved, they have a ministry to the unsaved. I just gotta hit them real quickly. Look at the Old Testament. They're involved in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not God's people. It's people away from God. They're involved in the plagues of Egypt. Go read the plagues of Egypt. Isaiah 37, 36, you want to talk about how bad angels are? One angel killed a 1,000 people in a single night. Isaiah 37, 36. One angel slaughtered a 1,000 people. One angel. Right there. Revelation. It was angels that are involved in judgment. They hold back judgment, and then they release on God's good timing and word. When Jesus returns, anybody looking forward for Jesus' return? Guess who comes with him? I read it again this week in my own devotional time, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels, and he will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter where Jesus goes in the gospels, angels are there because angels are really interested in Jesus and the salvation he provides. Very interesting. You have Michael. He's a warring angel. He has an argument with Satan over the body of Moses. Do you ever read that in Job, Jude chapter 1, verse 9? Isn't that a weird scripture? It's so weird. Sometimes we just keep reading and go to the next chapter. Like, oh, Jesus, you know, let's just don't talk about that one. That one's weird, right? Like, what is going on here? Jude 1, 9. You see what happened? Michael's warring with Satan over the body of Moses. That's what he said. He wars with him. Where is the body of Moses going to go? And interesting enough, the Bible says he dared not, the angel dared not 
condemn, or dare not to slander, dare not to slander. This is what's amazing. Satan had the gall and nerve to slander Michael. He's a slander. By the way, if you are slandering somebody, you're doing Satan's work for him. <laughs> yes? If you slander somebody, you're just, you're just doing Satan's work for him. And the angel dared not slander him, but he rebuked him and said, the Lord rebuke you, a.k.a. I leave the judgment up to the Lord to do what, you, what he wants to do with you. Revelation 12 there's a war in heaven, and the Michael and the angels are warring against the dragon and his angels, and they're cast down and angry, and they will be confined forever in hell. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 11.10, Paul says women should make sure they are in subjection to men. And then he says, and do it because of the angels. What? 1 Corinthians 11.10. Women begin subjection to men and do it because of the angels. Why do angels care about how dwelling place worships? Because they've seen insubordination and rebellion, so they're concerned that every church gathering done be done with decency and order. They've seen rebellion. They've seen insubordination. I have absolutely no doubt that angels are here right now observing us. Oh, of course they are. Why do demonized people have a hard time sometimes coming into church gatherings? Oh, yeah, it could be because of the presence of God. Also, it could be because of angels that set guard over places. I was reading this last week about the ordination of Paul. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.21, when we ordain people for ministry, look what he says in 1 Timothy 5.21, I charge you in the sight of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Have you ever been to a, a pastoral ordination service? Guess who's there? Angels. Angels. Now there are two things, and this is how I close, that should absolutely fascinate us. Two truths that should transform us, and this is what I want you to lay hold of today about angels. Number one, our exaltation as sinners. Our exaltation as sinners. What do you mean, Craig? We as human beings, according to Scripture, are for a little time lower than the angels and then will be exalted above them. That's what the Hebrews says. Listen to me, church. Listen, this is so powerful. That doesn't mean one day we will have angel bodies or will one day be able to fly. The Scripture says we will be exalted above angels. Why would we be above angels? Think about it. Despite all of their advantages, actually, if you're a believer, you don't want to trade places with angels. You've seen the old uh, Mel, what is it, Meg Ryan movie with uh, Nicolas Cage? What's that old movie? City of Angels. He wants to leave angelhood to become a person, right? Take a shower, feel water, touch humans, fall in love. A little bit sacrilegious, nonetheless, but anything with Nicolas Cage is awesome. You know why you don't want to be an angel? Because an angel's created independently and discreetly. God created them, but they have no family connections. They don't procreate. You don't believe it? Jesus said angels don't procreate. Procreate. He says they don't have they don't have sex. So that means angels have no aunts, no uncles, no moms, no fathers. So they don't share a family relationship with Jesus Christ. No angel can say Jesus Christ is my brother. But you can. No angel can say Jesus Christ is my older brother, but you can. The reason we inherit what Jesus inherits is because we are called Jesus' brothers. We shall be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Jesus receives his inheritance, and we participate that in, in that inheritance. Have I rung your bell yet? If I hadn't, let me ring it real quick. 
One day we shall rule with Jesus Christ and in the kingdom we shall reign with him forever and ever and we will have exaltation above the angels. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? We will judge the angels. He says, Corinthians, can you not take care of your division issues in the church? Why are you going outside? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Time out, Paul. What in the world's going on? This does not mean we adjudicate angels. You know what this means? It means we have control over God's angels because when God makes all things new, they will just be a part of God's creation. And in that amazing statement, Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit next to me on my throne just as I overcame and sit next to my father on his throne. That means we get to rule over angels. We literally are placed higher than the angels. And if anything should grip our soul this Sunday morning and be transforming, it's the fact that we as sinners who don't deserve anything are graciously going to be exalted above the very angels created by God. And God says you're going to be on display for everyone to see. And that's why when we look at it, we could say, how could someone one like me be so low and in the end be so exalted so high that's stunning that's one thing that should grip us the last thing that should grip us is this with equal passion the angels themselves are interested in salvation why first peter 1 12 the Peter begins to write that the prophets are trying to understand the Messiah and they turn to put timetables on when the Messiah would come like we do. We put timetables on when the Messiah will make a second coming. They didn't know when he's coming. And the Bible says even angels long to look into these things. Can I tell you why angels long to look into your salvation? Follow me. Give me 60 seconds. Angels were on hand when Adam and Eve sinned in garden. When Adam was driven out, protected, God protected the garden with cherubim to guard the door, the cherubim and the flaming swords. And he says, you're not going back to Eden. That part of my history is gone. I can't recreate paradise. From now on, I'm going to be a redeeming God and I'm going to redeem you back to myself. The angels saw it. They were there when God chose Abraham. The angels were there when, when later on when Jacob needed the comfort to meet Esau the next day. So a host of angels came and met him in the book of Genesis. Gabriel, the angel are hand when Daniel was written. The, the book of Daniel was written. Gabriel was sent specifically to him to help write his book. They were on hand and Jesus born in Bethlehem. And then what happened? A multitude of heavenly angels glorified God saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. Why are they so excited about a redemption that they themselves are not participating in? Why are they happy for us when they themselves are not getting redemption? Well these are the elect angels who don't need redemption. And they are thrilled about about Jesus saving sinners who will one day be placed above them. Why the excitement? Let me tell you why the excitement. Because after Jesus dies on a cross and he goes to heaven, by the way, at the resurrection, you remember when the Bible says they come up to the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in fine linen. He's been created millions of years ago and he still looks young. Doesn't that make you long for heaven? You don't get older. You don't get wrinkles. You don't get decrepit. You don't grow old. You don't get, you don't get hurt. He wipes away every tear. And this angel looks looks like a fine young man. And the Bible says 40 days later, Jesus ascends and two angels go with him. And he says, why are you looking up with your head in the sky? Just the way that he left, he will come again. Why all the happiness in Luke 15 from an angel when one single sinner converts to Jesus? Why? Because they are beings totally free of envy. There's not an envious thought in one single angel. They rejoice over our exaltation as if it was their exaltation. Why is there a cosmic celebration? Let me tell you, church. 
It's because they understand in ways that we do not the staggering cost of our redemption. They understand. They understand. You Why? Why? Because they were amazed at the humiliation of God at the incarnation. They saw Jesus in His glory and saw Him give that up for you. They're amazed at God's humiliation. They're grieved at the pride of humanity. And they see the part when Jesus came from His glory in ways that we don't understand and we don't know. And they see Him lying in a manger and they're at the crucifixion seeing Jesus die. And they see all that God went through to redeem sinners. They rejoice and they say, God, how could you show that much grace? What a God we serve. And they sing all the more. They sing all the more. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.